together for a while. Four weeks. Four weeks we've gone from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum to Thyatira. And over the course of those four weeks, we've, we've heard a little bit about what, what each letter to each of these places, to the church in each of these cities, what it kind of tells us about the church. So we've looked at love as a defining characteristic. We've looked at suffering as a defining characteristic of the church, holiness and truth. And this morning, we're, we're coming to the city of Sardis and wondering what Sardis has to teach us this morning about what it means to be the church. But before we open scripture, before we come to the book of Revelation, let's pray for the Spirit's guidance. Our gracious God, please send your Holy Spirit to move in this place as we hear your words, as we open scripture, as we are attentive to what the Spirit is saying to the church in Sardis and to us here this morning in Kitchener. May we have ears to hear, hearts open, and lives changed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So before, before I launch into the letter, I want you to listen closely and see if you catch anything different. So we've, we've had four of these letters, four of them, and they, there's something a bit different about this particular letter to Sardis. So see, see if, as we're reading it, if, if you catch it. So Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6, for your pew Bible, if it's easy, 1916. Most of us there, you've got it. I know I didn't really give you a heads up before launching in, did I? No. Okay, so listen, listen then for the word of God. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and what you have heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. For the one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. And I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word of the Lord. Did you, did you catch a difference? Was there, was there something missing? Was it similar to the four previous letters or was there something a bit off about this particular one to Sardis? If you have a real answer, you could shout it out, but I won't put you on the spot. 
let's just go back for comparison. We only have four letters, so let's just do a quick kind of like skip of each one. So if you still have your Bibles out, I still hear pages turning. So if you just flip over to Ephesus, where we were in our second week when Pastor Carl took us through the letter to Ephesus. So chapter 2, verse 2. This is, what, this is what Jesus says to Ephesus. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. Then if you notice, it goes on for just a few more lines talking about what Jesus encourages and affirms in the, letter, in the church to Ephesus, what they're doing well. And then if you go to Smyrna, same thing. I know your affliction and your poverty. I know about the slander directed at you. And then, as we saw when we went through the letter to Smyrna, Jesus goes on to give encouragement and an affirmation to them in the time of their persecution. Next up, Pergamum, verse 12. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. And then again, after stating that, he goes on to say a bit of words of encouragement and affirmation. Before, you know, moving on to that, nevertheless, this I have against you, and here's where you've fallen short. But first, affirmation and encouragement. And then Thyatira, where we were just last week. And this is what Jesus says to Thyatira. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. And again, then Jesus kind of has a few more lines about encouragement and then kind of uh, highlights their shortcomings. I know your deeds. I know you. Here's what I appreciate and love and I encourage you in. And then here's where we got a bit of work to do. Okay? So this, this, is, this is the pattern. I know your deeds. I know you. Affirmation. What we need to work on, right? We've seen this pattern. And I just want to, want to pause here for one second because we need to set up how Sardis is going to hear these four letters before getting to their particular letter. Because the, the way that these letters were sent out, the way that these letters were read, it's not kind of like Canada Post had each individual letter mailed to each particular church. Where, you know, the church administrator got this particular letter to Sardis, opened it up, said, ouch, <laughs> passed it on to council, and council kind of swept it under the rug. Like the way that these letters were, were, were declared, were public and in context. So by the time the, the messenger came around with, with all of these letters to the churches, they came to Sardis, and there was a public reading of the letters. Not just the one for Sardis, but for all of them. And that also means that previous to that, all the other churches also heard all the other letters. This is what you did. And in fact, they would have done this with the entire book of Revelation. You would have had a public reading like this, gathered to hear what John, their pastor, was saying to them, what Jesus was saying to them. So it means that Sardis had heard the previous letters, and they got the pattern, right? I know your deeds, here's what I appreciate about you, what you're doing right, and here's where we're going to work on stuff. Got it? Got it. So you could kind of, you know, imagine them kind of like, listening impatiently to the letter to Ephesus and to Smyrna, kind of going like, ooh, Ephesus, not so nice, you lost your first love, that's gotta hurt. And then maybe kind of thinking about Smyrna and hearing the letter to Smyrna and going like, oh, oh poor Smyrna, they really did need that encouragement, didn't they? They, they, can, they can have it. 
And then it comes to their turn. And they're primed, they're set. I know your deeds, here's what you're doing well, here's what you gotta work on. Okay, Sardis, here we are. Jesus starts off really well, I know your deeds. I know you. Okay, yeah. So he must also know about our amazing worship, right? He's also gotta really know about how we balance the budget every year and come out ahead. He's gotta know about our ministry to the poor people in Sardis. We're known for that. Other people know us for that. Or maybe it's all of the above because, well, maybe Jesus just can't pick what he wants to affirm us in. And Jesus continues. You have a reputation for being alive. Yeah, we do. You know, they're kind of nodding, making eye contact with each other. You know, we've, we've got a reputation. We're, we're kind of known as the it church, right? And then something goes wrong. I know your deeds, check. You have a reputation for being alive. Affirmation? But Jesus declares to them that you are dead. I know you. You have a reputation for being alive, but you, you're dead. And there's no words of encouragement. There's no words of affirmation. There's nothing for Sardis. It's the only one of the seven that actually has no commendation, no affirmation of any kind from the total work of the church. There's no break for Sardis. He doesn't even throw him a bone. He mentions a few individuals who have maintained faith who have maintained being alive, but that's just a few individuals, and, and we'll come a bit more to them at the end of, of the sermon, but for the whole Church of Sardis, it's a pronouncement of death. Because in his letter to Sardis, Jesus looks at his church, looks at this particular congregation in Sardis, and he points out the gap between their reputation, what they're known for, what they're proud of, and the reality of who they are. Everyone else was fooled by this reputation, this image about what, what they did and how vibrant a congregation it was, but Jesus, Jesus wasn't fooled. He saw who they truly, truly were. Other churches were envious of their fine reputation. I mean, here, they, they, don't, they don't get charged with heresy or, or like, entertaining Jezebel or all the other ones that we've kind of heard about in the other four letters, there's no persecution. I mean, so Sardis actually has it pretty good. They have it pretty easy. And others are envious of them a little bit. Oh, that church has gotta be doing something right. They're alive. But Jesus knows his church better than that. The chief sin of Sardis, their major offense, was playing at being the church. Being so focused on the appearance of what they could and should look like, but not actually really caring about being what they had a reputation for being, of living into that name and that reality. They looked the part, they really did, but their heart wasn't in it. 
They were satisfied with a good reputation. They were fine with being a church of maybe what you could call hypocrites. At least they were successful at it. That is what Jesus charges Sardis with. They may have everyone else, even themselves, fooled. But you cannot fool the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars in his hands. That's the one you cannot fool. And that really shouldn't surprise us, and it really should not have surprised Sardis, but I get the feeling that it probably did. We're, we're really good at deception, and we're really good about deceiving ourselves. Back in Samuel, back in 1 Samuel, I kind of pluck you out of Revelation, we're going we're gonna to kind of go back to the prophet Samuel. And Samuel, speaking of David from the children's message, Samuel was looking at the sons of Jesse. <clears throat> the king of Israel was going to come from one of these sons, or was going to be one of these sons. And so Samuel's looking at them, lined up, big strapping boys, and he's like, okay, they're looking pretty kingly. Which one of them? Which one of them, Lord, are you calling to be king over all of Israel? And Samuel didn't really have time to think about calling out the youngest, the smallest David from the fields. Well, that's okay, look at, look at these guys. One of them is king material. Until the Lord reminds him of one very undeniable fact. That the Lord does not look at things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. We judge outward appearances. But God looks at the heart. And the church in Sardis fell really short on this one. They were all outward appearance, all reputation. But their heart wasn't in it. In fact, their heart wasn't even beating anymore. They weren't even on life support. They were dead. Flatlined. No pulse. And Jesus, the Lord of the church, the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, was desirous of sincere disciples living and loving together in Sardis, being a witness to that, that city, that community. And all he got was a church that had a good reputation but was actually a graveyard inside. It's a hard letter very little grace in this letter. There's, there's very little affirmation to point to and say, oh, but look, look here, okay, things aren't that bad. Because remember, no affirmation, no encouragement. I know you, you're dead. <clears throat> the sermon's not over, I promise. I, I won't leave you there. So there's something very modern, I think, about the current state of the church in Sardis. I think there's something very 21st century even about the church in Sardis, about their particular sin. Church in Sardis was preoccupied with the cultivation of a reputation, of a name, of an image. They were really well marketed. And I think Sardis would fit actually pretty well in our social media saturated, image driven culture. I think there's some resonance here. 
And, and I actually, I, I listened to a few other preachers who also found this resonance between, between this connection between the reputation-obsessed Sardis and our image-driven, reputation-obsessed culture. Really interesting, I'm like, okay, I'm on to something. Okay, this is great, I like this. I like when kind of preachers' minds kind of come together and you're like, yes, okay, great, 21st century critique, I love it. Except I was actually extremely disappointed. Because after making that connection, talking about how our, the critique of Sardis can very much be applied to our, our contemporary culture, image-driven, image-obsessed, all of that, they made a really sharp turn. Because all of a sudden, it wasn't about how are we like Sardis, it was about that church down the corner, a really successful big one, that one that we disagree with and we're actually kind of threatened by, that's Sardis, that one over there. Obviously, it has a reputation for being alive, but really, it's dead, it's a graveyard. Amen, case closed, lesson learned, we feel good about ourselves, we've condemned someone else, they're Sardis, we're not. <clears throat> we get out of the really difficult aspect of this letter by putting it on another church. And I was so deeply disappointed by that. Because the whole premise of this sermon series here is that all of these letters have something to say to the church, have something to say to us about who we are, who we are as disciples, about who we are as a church together. And we don't get off the hook by saying, we can kind of see in all these other letters, but Sardis, Sardis is that church over there. We have to see how we, how we are Sardis. That is so much more difficult. Jesus called out his church in Sardis because the reputation they had did not match who they really were. They hid behind this image of who they should be, of who they could be, rather than doing the hard work of living into it. And while I'm not gonna stand up here as your new pastor and say, I know your deeds, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Not going there. But there's a point that I think if we're honest, if we think about it, if we don't kind of let our defenses go up immediate, immediately, that we can say that we're actually not strangers to the idea of projecting an image of who we should or who we want to be. I'm going to say that that's not, that's not completely foreign to us to each one of us. I mean, here's a question for you, for those who do have Facebook, and I've been told I'm old because I'm still on Facebook. But your Facebook page, does it actually reflect who you truly are? Your posts, your pictures, your photo albums, the events you put up, the things you like, does it show you warts and all, flaws and all, who you are? Or your Instagram account, which I've heard is just a bit not, not as old. But it's not Snapchat, so I'm still old. I'm not on Snapchat. Instagram account, 
Is your Instagram account, if you have one, curated to kind of show your life is just a bit of a prettier version than the one you actually live? Just a bit more put together? I mean, social media gets a lot of bad press. I don't mean to bash on social media. I really actually do love my Instagram account. It gets bad press for encouraging this culture of image cultivation, that social media is the problem. But social media did not create this culture of make-believe and pretend. It's just made it easier. And it's also made it maybe just a bit more obvious. But we all live we all live with a gap between who we truly are, who we really are, the darkness and the light and all the ugly and all the good, and the version of ourselves that we want others to believe we are. There's always that gap. There's always that space between who we really are and who we want others to believe we are. And it's not just true for our online life, it's not just true for our work life, or our family life, it's also true for our faith life. Which is what makes this letter to Sardis particularly unsettling. Because it reminds us of this undeniable fact that Jesus knows us. He knows us. He's not fooled by our best versions of ourselves or our carefully cultivated image. Jesus sees us, and he knows us as we truly, really are. And while that is comforting to say to our little ones that Jesus knows you, that God has known you since you were in the womb and has loved you, we kind of grow up into the reality that being known kind of a double-edged sword. It's not all affirmation and encouragement. Sometimes it is a harsh word. It, it exposes us for who we truly are. Being known. Remember the lesson that Samuel had to learn. Man looks at the outward appearance. God judges your heart. So the question, to go back to Sardis, is Sardis lost? There's no word of encouragement, no word of affirmation, just the painful act of exposure. <laughs> before themselves, before all the other churches, before God. They're shown to be a graveyard of would-be disciples, instead of this living, functioning body of believers. Is Sardis lost? Is it just this kind of neon light of cautionary tale? <laughs> Don't be like us. Learn from us. Don't be like us. Is that, is that really kind of what Sardis is at? Is that how we use this letter? I don't think so. Because a letter to the church in Sardis, this letter, it's not an obituary. It's a wake-up call. Jesus doesn't go into affirmation, but he does go into, wake up, wake up, strengthen what is about to die. 
Remember what you have received and heard and hold it fast and repent. Wake up. Wake up. The situation is dire for Sardis. There's no doubt about it. It is dire. Which is why there's no time for pleasantries or kind of patting them on the back and buttering them up so they can hear the harsh words coming at them. There's no time for that. Jesus is rushing in with those paddles. I'm sure they have a name. I don't know what their names are. With those paddles and ready just to kind of like jolt them back to life because that is how dire it is. There's no time. There's no space. This needs to happen. Wake up. Strengthen what is about to die and repent. Wake up. Jesus steps in before it's too late and offers Sardis a way to come back. Repent. Wake up. And so this letter, this letter, this harsh letter, this letter with no affirmation, encouragement, commendation, this harsh letter, as difficult as it was for the congregation in Sardis to hear or for us to contemplate how it applies to us, this letter is actually an act of grace. It's an offer of grace. Because Jesus, the one who holds the seven spirits of God in one hand and the seven stars, who walks among the seven lampstands, could have walked away from this dead church and its image loving people. He could have called the time of death, signed the death certificate, walked away. It would have been a church graveyard, a warning for everyone who passes by. But he doesn't. Instead, the one who knows their hearts, who knows how far they have to go, gives them a reason to hope that they can come alive again. Repent. Wake up. We tend to think of repentance as kind of finger-wagging. Kind of that clucking, that clucking of the tongue. Repent. You've been bad. But this call to repent, this call to wake up, to repent, is an invitation of grace. An invitation to give up that reputation, to let go of the image. To confess the vast difference between who they think they are, who they truly are, and who they're actually called to be. It's an invitation to start again. John Stott, the preacher theologian that the three of us have been traveling with as we've gone through these letters, he surmises, this is, this is his kind of pastoral take on this letter, he surmises that what Sardis actually has to teach us is that, quote, a true and living church is characterized by sincerity. Sincerity. It's not a word that we often use, at least I don't really use it all that much anymore. It's a bit of an old-fashioned word. The only time I've really encountered it that I can remember is kind of at the end of formal letters, right? Sincerely yours. Whenever you actually get a formal, actual letter. But delving into the word sincerity, there's guts to this word. Sincerity is not just really meaning emotionally that I really, really feel this. I really mean it. It's not what sincerity is. Sincerity means to be genuine, to be honest, to be without deceit. 
And to use another kind of trendy word, to be authentic. That does not include a hashtag. To truly mean what you say. To be sincere means to hold together who you are in what you say and how you act. To be a sincere church means that we're a body of believers trying to live honestly and without deceit. Neither fooling ourselves or each other or God. To truly mean what you say, to have who you are and what you believe connect, to match up. And I think this is actually where a piece of our liturgy is helpful. <coughs> a marker of reformed worship, actually. The element of a service that often gets dropped a little too easily in our culture of contemporary worship. Because like the letter to Sardis, it can be a bit harsh. It can be uncomfortable and awkward. It's confession. Confession. Sardis teaches us that we need the language of confession, of repentance. Because this is how we cultivate a life of sincerity, of, of naming that this is who we are. This is who we're called to be, and here is this gap in between. Confession is how we cultivate a life of sincerity. It's how we fight back against the best version of ourselves that we prefer others to think and believe about us. Language of confession is how we're honest with ourselves, with each other and with God, by naming our real shortcomings and failures, our fears and our sins, both as individual disciples and corporately here in a worship service together as the church. Now, confession is really often misunderstood, which is why it gets dropped in worship quite easily, because, well, isn't it just a tool of guilt and shame? A time when we wallow just enough for God to give us forgiveness and mercy? Hit that perfect little balance of self-pity, groveling? But just like Jesus' call to Sardis to wake up, to repent, Confession is also an invitation, an act of grace. Because it is the space where the Spirit of God moves in our hearts, pointing out the gap between who we truly are and who we are called to be. Waking us up to where we are almost dead and where the Spirit is working to breathe new life. And this is only possible because Jesus, the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars in his hands, knows us as we are and loves us too much to leave us there. The last image of this letter, <clears throat> that last kind of chunk, that last half, is an image of the faithful ones the ones that Jesus points the rest of the church of Sardis to, the sincere disciples, 
who are wearing white robes, who receive the promise that their names would never be erased from the book of life. And this imagery is carried through, it's connected with, with the martyrs throughout the book of Revelation, but there's also a different imagery and illusion happening here. The robes, the white robes, the book of life, it also alludes to baptism. When someone was baptized, they would go into the water, often naked. They don't really tell you that in books too much, but often naked. You don't take anything with you into new life. You would walk into the waters, you would come out, and over your nakedness would be thrown a white robe. Your new identity in Christ, who you are now. Known by him, held by him, loved by him, belonging to him. This white robe of baptism of new identity. It would signify that their life is now set apart as a follower of Jesus Christ, whose name is now written through his life, death, and resurrection in the book of life. And that goes for us as well. In the waters of baptism, God claims us as his own and gives us a new identity. In the waters of baptism, Jesus gives us his identity, one that we cannot shake, one that we cannot deny. In the waters of baptism, the Spirit sets us on a journey. We're not done, we're not completed. Little, little Allison and Aria aren't done last week when they were baptized. They've got this whole life ahead of them of living into that identity in Christ. So in the waters of baptism, we're marked and the Spirit sets us on a journey. A journey of discipleship that is marked by sincerity, by confession, and by forgiveness. Wake up, repent, wake up. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Amen. pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for the letter to Sardis. We thank you for the ways in which you did not let them stay dead, but that your son, your son who was dead and came back to life, just won't let his people go. He won't abandon us, even if it means coming in with harsh words and exposure, it's for our good so that we can repent and come back to you. So we thank you for this letter to Sardis. We thank you for the harsh word, but also the promise, the hope, that through repentance, we always come back to you. That your spirit is always at work in us, forming us, shaping us, challenging us, changing us into the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
We pray this in the name of the one who holds the seven stars and the seven spirits of God. Amen.